Good morning to my viewers and listeners. Welcome to the next episode of Slaves to the Algo, or How to Stay Relevant in the Age of AI. My name is Suresh Shankar. I'm the founder and CEO of Crayon Data. In this episode, we take a sharp move rightward from the left brain to the right brain. I'm delighted to have with me Tim Kobe, founder and CEO of 8Inc, a global design firm. Tim has uh, many achievements uh, to his credit, and I won't dwell too much on them, except to say that he was part of the team that designed the first Apple store. He's worked with luminaries like Steve Jobs and global brand leaders around the world. And you might well be asking, what does a designer and a person who believes in customer experiences have to do with data and AI? We'll find out session of Slaves to the Algo. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Thank you, Suresh. It's great to be here. And Tim, how would you describe yourself? I mean, I know that uh, you know we work together in some things, but you're a multidisciplinary man. I mean, are you a left brain man, a right brain man? How do you introduce yourself? Um, well, I, I don't typically do it by um, a, a side of the brain, I guess, to begin with. I, I, I hopefully try to engage the entire brain. Um, but our, our uh, you know, background and history has come from uh, more of the creative service industry. So uh, most people would associate that with right brain type of, of activity. Um, our focus has been trying to understand human beings very well and be able to translate uh, the types of things that matter to people in into uh, valuable experiences. And so I've had an industrial design uh, experience design firm now uh, for 30 years. We started in San Francisco. Um, and um, yeah, I was born there and uh, live now in Singapore. So pleasure. That's that's great to know. And, you know, it's 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 uh, funny when you say we use the whole brain because you know most of us should and we don't. It should be a no-brainer that we use both the right and the left brain. But how do you feel like uh, before I kick off? How do you feel like everything? You I mean you're a person who is said into crafting experiences. You're you're a designer, and yet you also mention an interesting thing that you try to understand a human mind and a human be behavior. That itself is a form of insight in using data, right? So how do you? actually develop that? Is it all intuition or you have you trained yourself to understand human behavior very differently? Well, I think, I think you know, we, we try to um, take any of the sources who contribute to a, a better understanding of human behavior. And, uh, you know, we, we take a continuous learning sort of approach to that um, as algorithms and feedback and, you know, analytics have come into the, the forefront. Uh, you know, in recent years, that's additional information. But we, you know, we have we have um, you know gr a great amount of information from psychologists. Um, you know, the the types of of um, you know the the old way, I guess, of looking at things through psychographics and demographics has evolved into a much richer uh, palette of information. And a big part of it is sorting sorting through the information. And getting to the essence of, as you, as you were talking about earlier, about how how do you remain relevant and connected to people? So, Tim, uh, could you share with me perhaps a couple of examples that you're seeing in your own life, either as a consumer or in your work life, where you've seen some really great use of algorithms and data to, you know, either enrich or endanger the way we live? Um, yeah, I mean, I think. In a in a way, 
um, much of the progression of the development of this technology has followed a, a relatively predictable path. And that, that being one of, of linear progression, um, I think it's, it's much more evolutionary than revolutionary, at least uh, at, at the stage we're at today. I think you do find maybe a few examples where people are trying to uh, look at it a little bit differently than, than just a technical capability. Um, and so I think there are companies who focus on creating value, in which case I think that's probably more, more revolutionary in the approach. And I think there are those who are looking to, to extract value. And those, I think, are less revolutionary. Um, I think it was uh, Tim Cook back in, in 2015 was, was somewhat critical of Google and Facebook, and not surprisingly, I suppose. But, you know, he was, he was critical of them essentially uh, for, for greed-driven data mining. In other words, trying to know as much as you possibly can and monetize it. And I think that that's a pretty sort of close-in evolutionary, uh, predictable way of, of thinking about it. But when you start to think about the impact that it can have on, on people in terms of, of creating more positive human outcomes, I think it changes the design framework. And um, so, so I think that kind of criticism is actually fair. Um, and um, I think it means that we just need to continue to evolve the conversation so that what we ultimately end up creating are the best things for the most people. And that's fascinating. And I'm going to kind of, since you picked up Tim Cook, and I know you worked with Steve closely. I know you designed the first set of Apple stores and you worked with Tim after that. So when you look back at somebody like Steve Jobs, who famously once said, and I don't know whether he said it, but that's what everybody says, that customers don't know what is possible. And uh, he had this great thing about design and being innovative and revolutionary. How was his approach to data when you were working with him? How did you guys look at data and insights? And I mean, the word algorithm is overused, but how did you look at data and insights at all? And um, did he use that to inform the way he developed his, you know, revolutionary ideas? Well, you know, I mean, when when we started working with him, Apple was a much different company. There were probably 200 employees. It was in, you know, 1997, 98, when he, when he first came back to the company. Uh, you know, we worked with him every week for the next the next twelve years, with the exception of maybe holidays and sick days. But um, you know, the 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 approach that Steve had, I think, was fundamentally counter to what the majority of of the tech industry has had. And I think people both loved him and hated him for that reason. And that was that he he wanted technology to be the most accessible to the most people. That that it was ultimately about what what did anything they create, whether it was the you know the iPod to the iPhone to you know to the Mac, whatever it was, how did it enable the most people to have the power of that technology in their hands? And he didn't believe that it should be uh, kept sort of separate from the general population to be used by a few. He, he believed it should be extended you know to the masses. And I think that that's um, again, you know, both both a positive and a negative. Um, uh, but you know, the people who loved him, they loved him for that for that reason. And I think that um, it fundamentally comes down to what did whatever he was creating do for people. It it had to have positive human outcome, and uh, even to the extent that you could say the creation of the iPhone at the time, he thought he was creating phenomenal positive human outcomes. Uh, it, we've come to see today that there are also negative uh, outcomes that have happened with the evolution. And um, certainly, 
you know, the data, the data feedback, exploitation, those things are potential negatives. The positives are phenomenal service, phenomenal capability. Everyone has, you know, there used to be a, a cause for everyone to have a laptop. Well, everyone has more than a laptop in their hand today with, with, with uh, mobile devices. So, you know, I think that um, all of this is part of a, of a continuing kind of, um, you know, uh, conversation that we're having between people and technology. And it's important for us to think about that relationship with the right objectives. If it's just financial, you're probably not going to end up doing much work in terms of uh, importance or real value creation. Um, you know, I think that that it's it's really a uh, an opportunity for companies to um, not mistake uh, the technical capability for creating value. Um, so, it has to be in, informed and a function of, of human outcomes for it to be to, for it to be important. So just staying with that thought for a moment, you like you said, you were in the room with him for many, literally a decade plus. Um, so I mean, I'm just trying to get into this whole thing of understanding consumers and making products that are accessible to everybody. Did he rely mm -hmm. on bring over research and polling and insights or were you operating on gut feel or was it, like you said, you use both sides? Is it a combination of both? How did those decisions happen? I mean, you know, far too often we see in big companies that it's all about the data and what you're doing. So how did that magic happen in that room? Was that data at all present there? Um, you know, there, there was absolutely. And he was interested in finding as much uh, influence about uh, the decisions they were making to improve their product. You know, uh, Scott Galloway talks about the new algorithm of value mm -hmm. being a being a function of the number of receptors that a company has and the amount of information intelligence that they can derive from it. And then it's and then it's what you do with that. Um, you know, he was certainly interested in having that that information. But I think one of the things that maybe made him different was he was extraordinarily ambidextrous, if you can say that in terms of of his the, the way he thought. You know, um, one of the reasons people found it difficult, I think, to work with him was um, somebody who was really good at analytical, you know, thinking could come in and here, you know, here's a here's a, a logic tree, and we're going to follow this logic and look, it's it's perfect. You know, if it was wrong, he would he would see that bust in a second and and send them away. But if it was perfect, then he would turn to the other side and go, but it you know it just doesn't feel right. And how does somebody who's a master at logic deal with feedback that says it doesn't feel right and vice versa, right? So most people have a strength of one or the other side of the brain. And, and I think he was just basically very strong in both sides and could easily flip between them. And if, and if it worked on both sides, it typically would work. And so, you know, I think he was, he was running through an assessment, his, his own internal kind of assessment with that in mind. And the part that maybe, you know, would be more the right brain is how did it make people feel? Did it did it really satisfy human human uh, uh, needs at the same time as as, you know, technical criteria? And I think that, that his ability to work with both of those were fundamental. And that's very interesting because what you're saying is there's a lot of data that can inform you at a, you know, almost if you will, I'm trying to parse this at a feature level. This is the right thing to do. This is what people are going. But there's a higher level of data, it's almost like a metaphysical plane, you know, when you're talking about how something, the outcome of that makes you feel. So it's like a higher order attribute mm -hmm. that you're seeking. So um, it must have been quite magical, but you know, again, just uh, 
just staying on Apple, I don't want to make this about Apple, but you've been an yeah. Apple veteran in terms yeah. of design yeah. for a while. It's now a company with yeah. Tim, who's, uh, again, an extraordinary stood for, but it's become a very efficient company. Everything just works. So is that becoming mm. more, I mean, are they, are they kind of now led more, more by data? I mean, I, I know he's taken some stands against on privacy, on mm. other causes, but is it becoming more a company that's about data and it's about, um, you know, logical thinking in your experience? Well, I, I mean, you know, uh, I, I think Steve's, Steve's Apple and Tim's Apple are, are two different companies and, and Tim, you know, rightly so, is steering it in the direction that that he believes is is the most uh, um, most ideal for an ex extension of this brand. I don't think it's it's data versus no data. I, I don't really see it in that sense. I think it's are we are we focusing on the human outcomes in in a positive way? And if so, then what are the tools to achieve that? So I I think it's a it's somewhat of a false polarity that that you you. You know that you shouldn't have. You should either have or not have uh, data-driven insights. I think what what he's doing is moving a company as much into services as he is into into you know hardware, and that that Apple has always had a, that relationship uh, between hardware and software. And um, so, to me, it it feels like a very natural extension of of the core brand values. And I think then it comes down to what you know. What are the things that you're doing that reinforce that? And I think you know you can look at you can look at um, other companies um, as well. I mean, you know, look look at the the evolution of Netflix and how it's how it's helped change its um, uh, its experience with their customers. Um, you know, I think you know Apple Apple could have been doing what Netflix is doing today, but um, you know, next Netflix was able to come in and I think have. A very successful application of that the new algorithm of value. True, true. Um, I don't want to make this all about Apple. I mean, I know that your accomplishments and some of the stuff that you do go way beyond what you've done with Apple. So, sure. I'm just shifting a little bit. You've written this uh, book. You've kind of got this moment called the Return and Experience, and um, that's quite a fascinating thing because again, it's not purely a right-brained ideas, creativity-led up thing. It's all about, I think, how do you create compelling customer experiences that make people feel differently? Um, could you tell us perhaps, again, how are you how are you using data and how are you actually deriving these um, insights to understand human beings today? And how are you doing that differently from, let's say, when you started your career two or three decades ago, in terms of the way you're understanding human insights and creating experiences? Yeah, I mean, I think you know the feedback systems have gotten far more sophisticated over the years. Obviously, um, you know, we we used to build a mock-up uh, of a space and and bring people through and then do a sort of informal survey, and if that works, okay, we'll we'll try it, and then we roll it out and you know get it in the field. Um, you know, but I think that you know today there's all sorts of testing uh, work we've done with Lincoln in China. Uh, the testing was was basically every time we had a new proposition, it was uh, you know focus groups looked at it. We got feedback from different segments, etc. Um, we're doing work with with one of the biggest banks in Thailand. Uh, we have been doing research um, regularly with uh, consumer segments to ensure that that the focus is going to be something that's that's not just an incremental change, but a but a dramatic but positive change. So you know the the methodologies in those in, in those applications still include 
uh, you know, formal surveys. But on top of that, now we're, we're getting information that comes through behavior of ongoing um, activities. So uh, work we're doing with Xiaomi in China, for example, uh, you know, they have a 50 million uh, person group called Me Fans. And the Xiaomi mm-hmm. fans, when they, when they put out a new product, uh, Xiaomi will introduce it to their fan base. And the fans basically give, they critique it. They're doing all of this online on their mobile device, what have you, and they'll critique it. So Xiaomi knows before they ever spend a penny on the tooling, whether this product is going to be a success or not. It's an extraordinarily powerful thing. Um, and what we've helped them develop is uh, a, a system that's used through their retail where, where you look, you look all the information you get when you're browsing a product uh, completely through the transaction and payment uh, is done on your mobile device. So we don't need cash wraps anymore. We don't need any of these things. But what happens is, you know, Xiaomi probably gets a hundred times more insights through tracking the behavior of what people look at and buy, what they look at and they don't buy, where they where they fall out of that user flow in terms of, you know, was it price, color, availability, et cetera. Um, but it gives it gives their customers basically a breadth of of um, capability allows them to see you know the space may only hold 200 products but but they make 2,000 products so it gives them the ability to sell 2,000 products now out out of a um, out of a, a what was the traditional retail space but it's because it's become this virtual platform that's that's fantastic so you're saying they have a 15 million base of me fans and they can literally launch any new product to a small segment test it out and keep iterating till they put it out of the mass market. Is that how they're doing this? Yeah, basic, basically the, the me fans, they love the brand. They've signed up. They want to know the, the latest things. They get to see stuff that's, you know, maybe it's in model form. Maybe it's in sketch form. They get to see interesting things that the company's thinking about and contribute to it. They get to give feedback. They can, they, they can say they love it or don't like it, but the, um, the majority of them give much more information than that. And so they're able to extract uh, feedback suggestions. You know, I love it, except it should have this feature. And uh, then they go back and work and develop the design and, and include that, that new feature if it, you know, if it makes sense. And um, I think it's, it's become, uh, you know, it sort of has this, this, um, this interesting quality, you know, a bit, a bit like, um, you know, when you're launching a new product uh, where you get people who buy into it, um, you know, believe that it has, it has value and purpose and, and then, um, you know, can, can, can grow and develop it from there, but they become participants in the company in a way that, that they, they have a certain degree of ownership, a certain degree of connectivity to the brand that, that is beyond transactional kind of, Kind of value, and, and and this is a fantastic, you know. I mean, we talked about how design and data don't need to collide; they can collaborate. And this seems to be a fantastic expression yeah. of that. Why do you think more companies are not doing something like this? Lots of companies have 20, 30, 40 million customers. Um, I'm fascinated. Yeah. I mean, do you work with anybody else who uses this approach? Um, nobody, nobody who has that sort of scale. Um, I think that that the ones that we're working with. Uh, you know, certainly would love to have that sort of scale in terms of a, of a feedback uh, loop. But um, as as we've seen a, a much more rapid, you know, transition into digital space, you know, a year and a half ago, 
we were still convincing people that the, the retail singularity was real, that there that physical and digital were one channel. Uh, they were everyone was sort of scratching their head a year and a half ago. Today, it's it's already understood, and um, the notion that that there's a digital channel and a physical channel is is pretty much over. It's it's all one, and I think you know the COVID transition being so so extreme and so rapid. Um, virtually every client that we're talking to has exceeded their numbers on the on the, the digital side. And that means that the participation and the understanding and the feedback systems that they're getting, you know, through that through that channel is um, is uh, becoming a much greater part of the entire feedback system that they're getting. It used to be retailers would have, you know, cameras, et cetera. So that's an interesting thing you're talking about physical and 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 digital kind of coming together and yeah. I think there's a lot of research that shows that consumers today they follow a random walk no longer is it the old funnel where I found something I found out more details I went to the shop I bought it and I experienced it it's a pretty random walk now between all of this but uh, something interesting happened this week right I mean you know we both in Singapore Robinson's iconic store in Singapore has announced that it's going to shut down and cannot function and something interesting is happening in China and Hong Kong, where Ant Financials had the literally the largest IPO of all time. Uh, and is this Correct. kind of, I know you're saying the two worlds are coming together, but is this story over? Is the physical guys lose out, lost out to the digital guys? And, and maybe the digital guys like Amazon launching its own store are going to go physical? What, what do you think is going to play out in the next um, few years? Does, has digital won the battle completely? Uh, well, I, I think what's happened is the conversation was, you know, the notion that there were these two different channels was a product of the evolutionary thinking and that evolutionary thinking, which is what I'm worried about, even with AI, for example, that evolutionary thinking means that you're going to polarize it and it's going to become this or this. And the answer is neither one of the peer players are going to be successful ultimately. The ones who are going to capitalize the most on it are the ones who recognize the value that physical interactions and virtual interactions can play and make the most of that. And so I think this is why, you know, Robinson's going down. Um, they they stood by their their pure play position of a physical retail space and and you know wrote it into the ground. Um, it's not surprising there's going to be winners and losers. There's going to be companies who refuse to adapt. Those have historically been the species that have become extinct in the world, and and that will continue in in business as well. So I think you so, know anybody who doesn't embrace both is in big trouble. <laughs> and that's that's a really fascinating take, uh, Tim. You know, I kind of deliberately set this conversation up by asking you, are you a left brain or right brain person? Because I mean, I know you're not. I know you're both. And um, every time somebody asks me, I mean, you talk return experience i talk about return on data all the time and i also keep telling but i'm actually more of a you know a human design thinker than i am a data person but uh, i'm just mm -hmm. staying with that thought of uh, you know of adapting and you know the whole, whole thing about the age of relevance really is that i keep saying it's about people that stay relevant that are going to succeed so this new creature yeah. this hybrid creature would seize um, both data and experience both left and right brain both physical and digital as one thing you're arguing that this is not evolutionary, this is revolutionary. Is there well, it's, any it's example not... of somebody who you think is 
now there in terms of that revolution? I mean, anything that you come across in your life, either from your clients or your experiences, so the cutting edge of that revolution? Um, well, I, you know, like I said, I, I think that, that Xiaomi is doing a really interesting job of bringing that, that point of view together. Um, you know, I think there, there are companies, um, we're working with uh, one of the major healthcare providers in the, in the world right now. And we're really interested in that, uh, that integration because, um, you know, particularly in healthcare, there's, there's, there's an important part of that human to human interaction. And there's an important part where the information, the communications and things can happen uh, in a virtual space. And the insights that are derived from both are going to be stronger than one or the other. So, so I think it's an and, you know, it's a plus versus, versus a, a division between one or the other. And, um, I, you know, I, I think that, 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 that kind of polarity is natural, the way we, we tend to frame and, and analyze things. But um, I think, it, you know, it's, it's, time, it's time to have, have, you know, to challenge the paradigm and to think about it differently. And the notion that uh, those things coming together are far more powerful than either one by themselves um, is, is, you know, is, is truly valid. So, Tim, um, continuing on in this, in this vein, um, we talked about the fact that you know, there is an and and it's a multiplier. And you talked about the fact that there is a polarization, if you will, in the way we frame the question. Uh, you work with a lot of clients. I work with a lot of clients. I find it difficult sometimes to go and talk to the analytical people inside and tell them there's a experiential mm -hmm. side of this that you need to consider. And you had literally the reverse experience. So what is it that is stopping people in companies from fusing these things together? Is it org design? Is it mindset? What's your experience in this? And what should they do differently? Yeah, I think I think our experience is that it's it's been primarily mindset, um, and you know we we use something we, we call a value creation engine, and what it does is it uh, of all of the different points of conversations that we have uh, with a client, we tend to put put them into these these three buckets, and the the top one is you know what what is the human outcome? What are we trying to achieve? If you can clearly identify a human outcome the ability for you to create value becomes much, much higher. From, from that definition of what the outcomes are that, you, that you're creating, <clears throat> you then need to have a strategy that delivers on those outcomes. You can have strategy and no relationship to the outcomes and they both can be fine. The problem is it won't work. And so with, with the strategy, it has to be aligned to deliver on the human outcomes. And then below that are the tactics. And nine times out of 10, the client will come to us with a tactical solution, a tactical challenge, problem, et cetera. And the tactics have to support the strategy. The strategy has to support the human outcomes. And if we get all those pieces in the right place, most of the time, you don't know if the tactic is going to be successful or not because it doesn't align vertically with, with ultimately value creation. So you can have a fantastic tactic. The problem is it's irrelevant to your business. And, and, and that happens quite frequently. And it's, it, in a way, it's a lot of people throwing darts in the dark. You know, you're, you, you, unless you can put things into the proper relationship to one another, it's going to be very difficult to, to build success, successful um, uh, businesses to create value. And that's very interesting when you say a lot of people throwing darts in the dark because occasionally they hit 
bullseye and then they think that they're genius. So exactly. happens quite a bit. But um, uh, I'm, I'm kind of um, I'm kind of going to just um, delve a little bit deeper into this topic about um, are you seeing any breed of new new people emerge? Who are able to actually successfully bring these two sets together, two types of thinking together, in the companies that you deal with, and if that, and if so, are those keep people coming from any specific type of background? I mean, are the people coming from digital more attuned to it? Are the people coming from, you know, the older, the younger? Are you seeing any patterns about the people who are doing this very well? Well, I mean, I, you know, I think if you look at many of the successful uh, startups historically. Um, and, and, and you might expect me to, to say this coming from a design background, but I think the people who have a design uh, understanding, insights, um, you know, experience with that have some natural competitive advantages. And first of all, looking at, at, at the human outcome part, you know, having empathy for the user, recognizing not just where you're solving problems, but where you can create brand new conditions. Um, it it's been helpful to to break that kind of linear thinking. And, um, you know, the the example that I see is, you know, I, I sit on school boards and for design schools and uh, advise, uh, you know, with the government in Singapore and others. And, you know, what we're seeing is many of the people who come from design schools are finding their way into business, not as a designer, but as somebody who can contribute to the to the conversation, and in many cases at the sea level, um, and I think that 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 that's ultimately good news because in the end, the more companies who take into consideration the human outcomes, our impact on the environment, you know, the the kinds of things that that are are bigger complex problems, the more those are taken into account when you're developing a new a new solution. The, you know, the, in the end, we're going to have we're going to have um, companies that have a more positive impact than negative. And there's no question we need companies who have the ability to have more positive impact today uh, than we have. So I'm not surprised at all, Tim, not, that, not about your taking that stance, but you know, everybody thinks that design is a some flash of genius and inspiration. And I keep telling people design is an extremely logical, you know, you've got to, you, you've got to have that big idea, but then you've got to kind of think through it very logically. And um, so, uh, you know, this is such a fascinating conversation. But I'm going to refer to a, another guest that I had on the show, Tim. And this is a gentleman who heads Marketplace and, and Platform for Expedia. He's an AI expert. And I was talking to him about data and AI, and his name is John Kim. And uh, John actually said something very interesting. He says, um, in the next five years, he says, brands and trust in brands is going to be the big differentiator, not how you use data or algorithms. And uh, I mean, I'm paraphrasing him a little bit out here. But I found that fascinating because, you know, here is a person who's basically building a platform that wants to understand everything about travel and how you travel. And he's saying it's going to be the brand and the trust in the brand that's going to be the difference. And I know that very much aligns the way you think, but do you really think, I mean, you know, in a world where advertising today is not driven by big ideas, but by, you know, what happens in the Google algorithm and the bidding. And, you know, now people are talking about brands, like, you know, becoming a different shader. What's your take on this? I mean, how important are brands going to be in this world when it seems that data is uh, driving all decisions? Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, Steve Jobs said that, that brands are about one thing and, and that's trust. 
um, I think that you're going to start to find that trust, because there are many sort of uh, issues around what we can or can't believe, the trust is going to start to become more and more a, a differentiator. Um, and I think it's going to rise in in the conversation. And, and, and this may be to his point that, you know, the brands are going to be able to to be the most successful are the ones who can communicate their values, communicate what they believe in, and then actually do that. And the ones who don't do it will be dropped. And the ones, you know, who say one thing and don't, you know, do the other, they'll have a problem. You know, I think it's, it's this issue of, um, you're going to, you're going to be judged by your integrity and as you should be. And the, the things that you, um, you say you're going to do, you, you do your best to deliver on. What's really interesting about that, <clears throat> the statistics show you're going to have much higher engagement if, if you're a trustworthy brand, you know, something like six times more uh, uh, opportunities for purchase to engage with your brand. You're going to create much higher advocacy. I think it's 12x on, on people becoming an advocate for your brand. And the interesting thing is five times more likely to forgive a mistake when you make one. And I think that that, that for a brand is, is incredibly powerful. You're going to have this, this um, uh, innate ability to compete better among your peers if you're clear about what you stand for and you honestly deliver what you say you're going to do. And I, I just think it's, 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 it sounds kind of basic, but it's actually uh, in a world full of noise and fake news and all of, all of the drama, uh, you know, people are just going to naturally select to things they can believe in and trust. And the other ones, they just won't have time for. There's just not enough time. For uh, that's, I, I can well understand that. In fact, uh, to share a relatable thing, there's research that shows that, um, and I guess this is because Apple has been a advocate for, for, for privacy and for data, not, not using your data to sell you things, that mm -hmm. uh, Apple Health is a, is a place where people are far more willing to trust health records and health data than some of the other big digital brands, uh, including including people like Google, right? Because there's a feeling that my data is getting misused and my data is safe here. And when it comes to health, I want my data to be absolutely safe and not being used in any way. So I think it's um, it, it, it's it's probably true that um, this whole thing of data and brands is going to be completely. I mean, the data conversation and the brand conversation are not going to be two different conversations. How you yeah. handle how a brand handles my data is increasingly becoming a very, very important part of uh, my relationship with the brand in the digital world. If they're not gonna keep my data safe, it's like a bank not keeping my money safe. And um, yeah. so I, I actually think that, um, you know, a lot of the conversations that we've been having other guests also talks about data as an emotional asset. But uh, Tim, again, I'm gonna come back and ask you a couple of things. As you look at the next three or four years, and you've had a, you know, a pretty long career of seeing how these trends evolve, what do you think is going to be the two or three big changes that happen because there is more data, there is more use of AI and algorithms over the next four or five years? What do you think are the fundamental changes that are going to happen as a result of that? Well, I, I guess, you know, one, one of the things is I think we are, um, you know, really in our infancy. Um, you know, Andrew Ng at Stanford talks about um, AI being somewhat like the next electricity. If you took everything that was created when, when we discovered electricity and commercialized it, and you take everything that was developed in the next 10 years, um, 
you know, some of those things, the light bulb maybe is still around, not even in the same form that it that it was certainly at that time. But you know, we're we're really at a very, very early stage. And if we're thinking of AI as the next electricity, much of the things that will ultimately, I think, have the biggest impact on our life haven't even been invented yet. I think that this this is where, as we move through things in a linear progression, we we tend to to go um, along uh, a path that's based on the past. And this is you know what Steve was talking about about you know consumers can't see the future. A lot of times you have to completely shift the way you're thinking to a completely new direction in order to um, to create something that that has impact and meaning. And I think that that's what you're going to see is you're going to see some pretty radical changes as a, as opposed to uh, it being a you know a, a functional capability with the technology. I think you're going to have to start looking at you know what are things that are going to really drive progress. And somebody is going to ask the you know the right question and and then apply some of that technology in a completely new way. Um, you know, to me, there's there's always been this this discussion about the rise of the machine, right? You know, this this whole notion that that you know we should be fearing artificial intelligence. What I fear is the people who have access to that intelligence. That they that you know it if it's not something that everyone has access to, it's potentially extremely dangerous. And so the idea of, of whether it's machine versus you know human or what have you, I, I don't think I think that's a distraction. And and the the reality is is that it has to become something to which we all have a voice and control over what we own, what 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 our our lives are are being commercialized for and have some some role in that. And so I I think there's there's potentially new economic models, there's potentially new um New ways of, of um, thinking, thinking about how the data, how the insights are derived, but how how they're commercialized as well. You know, if if, if uh, a handful of the most successful financially companies in the world have control to all the data, um, uh, uh, you know, is is that going to be the best thing for mankind? I, I don't know, but I, I wouldn't be worried about the robot as much as I'd be worried about the other men. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a wonderful way of putting it because ultimately there's a human being behind the machine, at least at this stage. And then there yeah. may be a machine behind the human being who controls the machine. Uh, and then uh, I'm just going to end on this one thing. Is there a way you think that the creative genius, I mean, and I'm just using that word in a broad sense, and I know it's, an old, it's a misused word, but somebody who has this, like you said, you know, this deep, this human outcome, this doesn't make people feel right. Somebody who get that thing something that we've called, you know, intuition. Do you think that can ever, do you see in maybe five years, 10 years that that can ever become an algorithm? Um, yeah. Are I mean, you going to see a Tim Kobe-like brain by the side in a machine <laughs> is the question in some ways. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I, I understand. I mean, I think, um, you know, this, this, this question, you know, is an interesting one. I was... I was involved in in some of the Web Summit and Rise conferences where they they pitted me against uh, uh, an algorithm to design things, and um, it, it, the, the the people who had the the design algorithms um, in each case 
chose to to not do it, to not demonstrate it. And and I think that part of it is that a the technology is, is certainly not there, but fundamentally, you know, somebody said, you know, you can teach a robot to replace the hand, right? You can you can have you can have the robot replace the hand to do the movements uh, that you need, but you can't uh, have it replace the touch yet. And the touch is is more of closing that feedback loop. So, you know, I think that um, you know what what we have uh, you know between our ears is a remarkably complex, amazing thing. Uh, I think we're really at the tip of of you know the exploration around AI and technology. Um, will it replace creative thinking? It's 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 hard, I guess, to um, to imagine a machine connecting to my personal memories. If I'm creating something today, uh, it might be a combination of something that I thought about when I was 12 years old playing with my brothers in the mountains or uh, something that I learned in college combined with some other experience, right? It's how do you, how do you put together those, those things which are completely nonlinear, nonlinear uh, associations and, um, you know, combine that with skill, combine that with intuition, I think there's it, there's a lot of challenges before we get to the point where um, AI can can really replace the brain to do to do simple functions and to do you know analytic analytical thought is probably uh, because we've seen the most growth in that area, that's the most natural extension. Um, but I think you know the idea of of um, getting getting a computer to redraw the Mona Lisa is not difficult. Getting getting it to create the next piece of art that changes society is, is pretty tough for a computer. So you uh, you know I provocatively titled this podcast series "Slaves to the Algo." So you think we're nowhere near close to that age when we are becoming slaves to AI and we're still masters uh, and will continue to be for some time. Would that be right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think if you're going in the slave master route, I guess that's fair to say. Yeah. <laughs> Tim, uh, thank you so much for your for your wonderful insights. Uh, like I said right at the beginning of my of my podcast, I think one of the things about AI and data is that we all assume that it's a very analytical, left brain, technology led thing, and uh, it's great to talk to people like you who are trying to fuse these elements. You know, bring data into design, if you will, not treat them as separate, not treat the physical and digital world as separate. Lots of learnings out there yeah. for our listeners. Thank you very much for uh, being on the show. And uh, thank you to my listeners uh, and viewers for listening to this episode of Slaves to the Algo. We had Tim Kobe, founder and CEO of Atink, explaining why he thinks it is going to be a combination of the right and the left brain that is going to create the revolution. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. We have new episodes coming out every week, sometimes twice a week. Each will seek to bring a different and fresh perspective to the topic. Please subscribe to the podcast channel and share it widely in your network. I look forward to speaking to you in the next episode. Meanwhile, stay safe personally in the age of COVID and stay relevant professionally in the age of AI.